0: Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, fresh off a stinging defeat at this week's food trivia night hosted by All Day Baby. Damn you, Armenian dumplings. Speaking of all day, baby, our guest on the pod today is none other than Linta, Ta, the restaurateur behind ADB, Here's Looking at You, and Tete-a-Tete. If you've ever been to one of her restaurants, you've probably seen her buzzing around the dining room, greeting every diner with a warm smile and running food to tables with purpose and passion. Lynn's story is a fascinating one, and we retrace her steps from her childhood in Georgia eating beige foods at Chili's to her culinary awakening in New Orleans, which eventually resulted in her opening one of LA's best-loved restaurants of the last decade, Here's Looking at You in Koreatown. We discussed the challenges of opening a new restaurant, what it was like to close seemingly for good during the pandemic, only to then rise from the ashes against all odds. From her leadership at her restaurants, to her work supporting women-owned businesses with regarding her food, Lynn is truly a shining light in the Los Angeles food community, and I'm stoked for you to hear our conversation. But first, The Infatuation released a controversial list of the 19 best pizzerias in Los Angeles this week. This caused quite a stir, to say the least, and a lot of y'all asked me what I thought of their selections. So, coming up next, I'm going to give you my unfiltered musings and outline the pizzerias I think were most hard done by being excluded from the list. So, without further ado, let's chow down. Dear listener, what a week it's been. I am beyond excited for you to listen to this next interview I have coming up with Lin Ta. Lin Ta is, as you know, the restaurateur behind All Day Baby, and here's looking at you. She's an absolute delight, and I had the pleasure of meeting her in person this week when I went to All Day Baby for their weekly trivia night on Wednesdays. And look, this isn't just any trivia night. This is a food trivia night, which is hosted by Lynn, and she usually has a celebrity guest judge. She's had Kiernan Shipka there. When I went, it was Jen Harris of the LA Times. And uh, I tricked my friend Sharif uh, mm-hmm. to come to this this trivia night with me. He thought he was just coming to happy hour and regular trivia, but no. It is food trivia. All of the questions are very specific to the LA food scene. If If you're an LA food lover, this is the quiz for you. Regrettably, I did not win. Uh, There was a moment there where our team was looking pretty good. And and when I say team, it was really just me because Sharif was not much help. And he'll tell you that himself. But we went into the first round, I think, in third place. Second round, we climbed up to second place. And by the third round, our team was in first place. We were right on high. We lost a couple of points in the fourth round and had to risk it all for the final question. And uh, we ended up losing in that final round because I didn't remember that Armenian dumplings are referred to as Monty. I, I had it on the tip of my tongue, and I just could not remember it for the life of me. Am I over it? No, not really. I'm still pissed off about losing. But you know what? It just means I'll be back next week, next Wednesday. So, hey, maybe I'll see you there. But before we get into our interview with Lynn, I wanted to quickly talk about something that happened on Instagram this week and on TikTok, which was the infatuation put out their list of the 19 best pizzerias in Los Angeles and the list caused quite a stir. So I posted this on my stories and got a bunch of responses with folks absolutely furious to be frank uh, that their favorite pizzerias were not reflected on this list. Now look. I love a good infatuation list. I really think the people at the infatuation do pretty good work. And especially when it comes to their lists that are all about trying to get you to go to a certain restaurant for a very specific occasion, like, you know, 74 restaurants to take your out-of-town relative from Waterloo, Iowa. Those are fantastic lists. Those are lists that, you know, don't really exist out there. And, uh, you know, if I'm ever trying to plan like, a big birthday party uh, where I want the vibes to be casual but cute. I know exactly where to look because chances are the infatuation has a list for that. And I'm grateful for that. However, when any, any entity, frankly, comes out with a list of the best anything in Los Angeles, it causes, it causes a stir and it raises questions, right? This list was interesting to say the least. Going over it, I think this was a list of 19 respectable pizza places in Los Angeles, and I think that a, a handful of them certainly deserve to be in the conversation for best pizzerias in Los Angeles. For example, uh, Pizzeria Bianco was on there, and we know Chris Bianco does phenomenal things. Uh, La Sordids was on there, and I'm a big fan of theirs. There's Quarter Sheets Pizza Club, which is doing you know God's work over there in Echo Park. But you know there are other places which I'm not going to name that. I don't think, really deserve to be in the conversation of best 50, if not best 100 pizzas in Los Angeles. So it does raise the question, what are we judging off of here, guys? What, what is the criteria? We would love to know. So a lot of folks reached out to me to ask what I thought. Who do you think, Luca, should be on this list that isn't? Who do you think are the best pizzerias in Los Angeles? So I, I have eaten quite a bit of pizza in my day. In 2021, I uh, checked out 100 different pizzerias in Los Angeles in 365 days, and I've you know continued my pizza journey since then, and I, I feel like I've probably been to close to 150 different pizzerias here in the city of Los Angeles alone, and then when we start expanding out to Orange County, San Diego, and Santa Barbara, you know, even Riverside County, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's a, it's a dangerous amount of pizza that I've consumed over the past few years. I've created a list of the pizzerias that I think missed out on being on the infatuations list, that I think truly deserve to be in the conversation for best pizzerias in Los Angeles. Now, this does not include any of the pizzerias that are already on the list, you know, y'all know, you are already on there, so you've gotten your moment in the sun. Enjoy it, okay? Um, but these are the pizzerias that I think that really missed out by not being on the list. I already shared five of them on Instagram and on TikTok as sort of like the most egregious misses, and those are Daniele Oditi's fantastic pizzana. There's Milana's in Long Beach, which I think is completely underrated. Their New York style is very good, but their Brooklyn Square's are truly a dream to eat, so I think they deserve to be on a list. Pie LA in downtown LA, it's Fred Eric's sort of like Detroit-style concept. He does something incredible, and he uses kombu water instead of regular water for his dough, which ends up giving the dough this light, airy, but yet umami flavor. It's, it's really, really something special, and I think completely underrated. Gras in Echo Park This is honestly one of the best pizzerias in Los Angeles and one of the best pizzerias I've ever been to, period. Uh, Their dough is sublime. It's, yes, a bit on the Neapolitan side. So if you have an aversion to Neapolitan pizza, maybe you have a prejudice against this place. But it's not your grandmother's Neapolitan pie. What they're doing is frankly incredible. The pizza has no flop, which is really hard to do with a Neapolitan, and the flavor of it is clean. It's a little bit tangy at times. Um, and, and it, it it's very interesting. It like evolves as you're eating it. It's it's an incredible pizza experience, and I can't say enough good things about it. And finally, Gorilla Pies in the Valley with their Pittsburgh style pies, they're doing something unlike anything I've ever seen before, and I'm really glad to have them on the pizza scene, so they absolutely deserve to be on the list. Now, I've got about a dozen others that I haven't shared, and I'm gonna share them now for the first time. So here we go. There are a couple of Detroit style places that I think that deserve to be on the list. Those are Doe Daddy and D Town Pizzeria. You know, they included uh a Detroit style or, you know, a square a square slice on there, which is quarter sheets, absolutely deserves to be on there, but I just think Doe Daddy and D Town they're doing it a little bit different, a little bit more in the traditional Detroit uh, uh, tradition, and they, they deserve some shine. If we're talking about best pizzerias in Los Angeles, they at least deserve to be in that conversation. Now, there are a few pop ups that I think deserve uh, recognition there's Lucky Nicks, there's Brandoni Pepperoni, and there's Quarantine Pizza Company. They all do variations on a Neapolitan style, and all three of these places are Dough fanatics. Their pizzas are absolutely incredible. They get wacky with their toppings uh, but you know, don't sacrifice flavor for it. They are all contenders for any list that goes out when it comes to, to pizza. So they missed out. There's a couple more artisanal pies which I think deserve recognition. One is Hail Mary in Atwater Village which honestly whenever my wife and I need pizza for a pizza night – that's where we go. It's just one of our favorites, and their sourdough crust is – it's it's art. It is high art, okay? Then there's Hot Tongue too, which is vegan pizza um, sort of in, in Silver Lake uh, when you're crossing the border into Frogtown, that sort of junction. And uh, it's the same people as Purgatory Pizza, and this pizza is very, very good. It's a little breadier, a little doughier, um, but flavor-wise, it is – very very good and because they're vegan they get pretty creative with their toppings not in a way that's like they're just throwing fake meat on everything and trying to recreate the flavors of of, of pizzas that traditionally have meats on them they get really creative with the way that they use vegetables um and and uh and flavor pairings in order to create interesting toppings so i, I think further ingenuity they deserve to be on the list there's a couple more traditional New York slices, which I think should get consideration. One is Bagel and Slice in Highland Park, which I think hasn't yet had its moment in the sun. And uh, Chef Brad Kent, who started it and, and made the pizza dough recipe, I mean, he he is a pizza master and you definitely get that when you go there and you try the pizza. There's Pizza Wagon of Brooklyn, which a lot of people love and I agree is very good. Uh, that's in the Valley. And then one one. New York style, which I think gets slept on a little bit, is Tomato Pie, which has locations in Silver Lake and South Pasadena. And I think that that definitely deserves to be be in the conversation. Finally, there are a couple deep dish places, which people, you know, have strong opinions about deep dish pizza. Is it pizza? Is it something else? But as far as Los Angeles, go, Los Angeles goes, Doughbox and Blackbird, those are two places that are making excellent – deep dish. If we're looking at pizza as sort of like a, a the complete conversation of pizza and we want to include as many styles as possible, we should absolutely be talking about Doughbox and Blackbird. And finally, this is a little bit of a controversial one because I have strong opinions about this restaurant and I, I frankly have a strong disdain for their pasta. But Mother Wolf, Mother Wolf in Hollywood, Evan Funky's Mother Wolf is the only place in Los Angeles that's really doing Roman style pizza tonda and it slaps. It frankly slaps. It's unlike anything else in the city and I have to say, if we're talking about best pizzas in Los Angeles, this deserves a nod. There are other places that people are probably going to you know, take me to task on and say, hey, why don't you have Danny Boys on there? Why don't you have Village Pizzeria in Larchmont? Look. They're just not my jam okay i uh I don't dislike those places necessarily, but I am a bit of a snob when it comes to pizza and if I'm talking about best pizzerias i i i just uh i'd rather I'd rather keep them off the list for now, okay Maybe they can prove me wrong down the line, but for now they're not on this list. There are also a few places that I haven't tried yet and that I really want to get to. those include Speak cheesy down in Long Beach. There's that new pizzeria, uh, Best Bet, that just opened on the west side. And also Friends and Family, I hear, is serving up a very good New York slice. Uh, There's also Gisalo in Ocean Park, which I haven't had the chance to have yet. In terms of pizzas I've had and the pizzas that I think that missed out, this is my list. This is my list. So hopefully that didn't piss you off too much before we get into our interview with Lynn. Uh, But if you have any strong opinions on pizza – Please hit me up. Please let me know what you thought of this list and please let me know what you thought of the infatuations list. I always love to talk pizza and uh, I'm sure this will not be our last conversation on the subject. But without further ado, I, uh, I, I think I've bored you with pizza long enough. Let's go and listen to uh, Lynn's story because I'll, I'll tell you what, it's a good one. Here we go. We'll be right back after the break. Joining us today on the LA Food Podcast is the one and only co-owner of All Day Baby. Here's looking at you. It's Lynn Ta. Lynn, how you doing today?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Oh my God. Thank you for joining us. How's your How's your day going?
1: Uh, I feel very behind, which is common, um, but I've been at All Day Baby this morning having a couple of meetings, some of them more social, some of them more business oriented. I had a waffle, so... The day could certainly be worse.
0: (laughs) The day can't be that bad if you had a waffle. Exactly. What are your LA stomping grounds?
1: Oh, I have so many. Um, I don't do a lot of cooking on my own, so going out to dinner is uh, important to me. I am going to Dunsmore tonight. I've Mm. been there multiple times. I love Chef Brian Dunsmore so much. I think his cooking is delicious, and I'm excited to go and visit Their newly minted pastry chef, Erica Chan. She recently did a collaborative dessert uh, four course tasting menu at All Day Baby, so I'm a big fan of hers. I also really like um, Antico. I was there recently. I go to Anna Jack quite a bit. I recently uh, had their Omokase tasting, which I've never been fortunate enough to get into, but. did <laughs> recently. And I saw a screening of Oppenheimer before that. So I called that day Oppenjack. And,
2: um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I really like I love pie that. and burger. I, lo- I mean, I love burgers in general. So I go to pie and burger. I go to In-N-Out. I also really love uh, supporting my friends, Courtney and Charles, who own Subaki and Atoto. Mm. Those are some like main ones, but I'm, I'm certain I have more.
0: That's quite the list right there. You mentioned burgers. Besides Pine and burger and In-N-Out, do you have any favorites around the city?
1: I mean, right now, not to talk about my own restaurant, but I have to say I am quite literally possessed by the new dry-aged cheeseburger at Here's Looking at You, which is available on our new uh, reverse late happy hour menu. It's available after 830 It's so good, and it's this house made sesame bun that our uh, morning prep chef, Alan, makes. And we've had a lot, we've had a few burgers at each restaurant, and they've all been different and special in their own way, but this has to be one of my favorites. Um, I also really like. Uh, as far as like fancy burgers, I, I was recently at L&E Oyster Bar, which is on Silver Lake Boulevard, mm-hmm. and I, I live in Silver Lake, and I think um, Chef Bryant does a really terrific burger there. He came from Petit Trois, so mm-hmm. he has a lot of experience making burgers. I have a lot, well, but I, I really oh, like really. classic burgers, so Pine Burger yeah. is truly my favorite.
0: That's I've never been. I need to go. I need to get out there. I've also never had the, uh, the Big Mech from Trois-Mec, which I hear is, or I'm sorry, from Petit Trois, which I hear is absolutely out of this world. But hey, we could probably do a whole podcast on burgers.
1: Probably. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that's not what we're here to talk about. I. So you say you live in Silver Lake, but from my my little research I did before this pod, I understand that you actually grew up in a different part of the country.
1: I did. I went to elementary, middle school, and high school in Marietta, Georgia, which is a fairly bigger suburb of atlanta georgia
0: yeah i love atlanta i've only been once i believe i went uh for the 20th anniversary of the 1996 olympic games and oh uh God. i had dinner at a restaurant called miller union and it so was good. just fantastic
1: Oh my gosh, what a special restaurant. I mean, obviously, when I was a kid, I wasn't eating at special restaurants by any means. Um, yeah. But anytime I've had the pleasure of returning, Miller Union is always at the top of my list to visit. I, I don't know if they serve lunch anymore. But I remember their lunches were really beautiful.
0: You, you mentioned you didn't grow up eating uh, at fancy restaurants. What did you grow up eating? And, and where did your love for food come from?
1: Well, a part of my childhood, I grew up eating my parents' home cooking. So my dad cooked a lot of Cantonese leaning dishes, and my mom cooked uh, exclusively Vietnamese cooking dishes. Um, So they were around in my life, kind of in my preteen and obviously baby years. Um, They were fantastic cooks, so, so good. But my life took a few turns, um, and around I'd say age 13 and, and through the end of high school. I ate at a lot of chain restaurants. So, mm-hmm. friends and, and groups at school, you know, we all kind of had our stomping grounds. So, certain people would go to Applebee's, other folks would go to TGI Fridays. I was more of a chili's gal myself. So, oh, chili's yeah. was always my first choice. And I would always get the chicken crispers with honey mustard and the corn on the cob.
0: Nothing not to love about that, you know I feel like I also grew up going to a lot of chain restaurants because I grew up in Europe, and anytime we would come to America, I thought the the way that Americans ate was to go to like TGI Fridays or Applebee's to your point. So I felt like the most authentic experience was to go to like a chili's, so I yes. feel like uh, I feel like your experience is one that to me uh, seems pretty American.
1: Yeah, and I absolutely just grew up like a southern suburban gal. Um, and I really didn't know otherwise. And I would even say I was a picky eater. I wasn't quite picky as far as my, you know, Asian food consumption, but my the Asian food consumption of my life kind of like was halted around thirteen or so. So I would just eat all of this chain kind of plain fried beige food, and then mm-hmm. to answer your other part of the question, I went to college in Boston, took those habits with me, you know, was on a dining you know meal plan, dining hall plan, and um, it wasn't until I met a really dear friend. Um, she lives in my same dorm building. her name's Catherine. She grew up uh, born and raised in New Orleans, and you know I'd never met anyone like her, just like so artistic, original, creative, like, you know, an individual thinker. And I I just felt like such a conformed individual. Anyway, so she would always talk about how she came from New Orleans, her mom worked at a really famous restaurant there. And she encouraged me to go and visit her in the summer, that first summer after our first year of school. And honestly, it was that summer, it was so transformative and that's truly how I fell in love with food because I, I tried oysters for the first time. I tried turtle soup for the first time. I went to visit her mom who I would later learn d- really did work at a famous restaurant. She worked at a, a Susan Spicer restaurant called Bayona and she was the GM and um, I think sommelier there. And so I think I had a little bit of wine at age 18. I had this like peanut butter and jelly duck sandwich that was incredible. So. Yeah. And wow. so ever since then, my, my palate kind of expanded overnight and I would sort of rack up a lot of credit card debt in college going to fantastic restaurants either in Boston or I would take this like $20 bus ride to New York City and, and, and go to great restaurants out there with friends that had you know such much more evolved palates than me based on how they grew up.
0: Did you have any meals during that time period besides the ones in New Orleans that really stick out in your memory as ones that, you know, you either learned a lot from or were formative in some kind of way?
1: I remember being very excited about Spanish tapas restaurants. Um, there were like a handful of them in Boston and I thought it was, Really cute and unusual to eat like small plates of food. And um, it's still now how I would, per- besides burgers, uh, it, it is how I like to eat nicer meals is to really have a lot of things all at once. Um, other than that, I, I just remember spending too much money on like really nice, nice meals. There was also, um, yeah. I, I did a summer at NYU and I didn't know anyone in New York and I was living down near Soho. And I also had a part-time job in that neighborhood as well. And there was this like really small cafe called Boom, as in B-O-O-M. And I'm not, I, I know I just told you guys I had a waffle earlier today, but I don't normally eat a lot of sweet things or sweet breakfast. But at Boom, they had this really exceptional French toast, and it was made with Hawaiian sweet bread, and it had a guava jam center. And wow, I, th-
2: oh I think gosh. I went
1: there every week and I had no money or no business, you know, just treating myself <laughs> in this way. But I, I still think about this French toast, and that was easily over 20 years ago. Um, so yeah, very, very memorable.
0: It's funny the things that stick with us over the years. And to me, one thing that when you just said I had no business spending that amount of money at that particular time in my life I was transported back to being an intern here in Los Angeles uh, and needing to go every day to get my coffee at a coffee shop called Toss. I don't even know if it still exists but Oh my gosh it, yes. you, do you know it oh,
1: I know it but I don't know if it still exists either but it was exceptional
0: Exceptional and I remember they had this like lavender cold brew or something like that or lavender hot chocolate that's what it was and I was like I need this every single day and just to get through the work day. But it was less, it, yeah. it's funny what we as like food people choose to spend our money on, uh, even when we don't have that much of it.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, so what did you study in college? I don't think your initial plan was to go into food. Is that right?
1: it was absolutely not my plan. Um, I didn't know what my plan was, but I, the major that I fell into at college, um, it was called writing literature and publishing. And I had a loose idea and some loose passion to design a magazine. You know, I was, I was like happy being on yearbook staff in high school. Um, you know, I don't know why we have this expectation that young people are supposed to have it all figured out at that point. Um, But I I just—I went to college blindly. I never even visited my school and uh, fell into this major. And you know, the the writing literature publishing program at Emerson College. You know, I was most interested in the publishing part, but of course, I had to go through all the literature and writing first. Um, Mm. It took a couple of years for me to even feel okay or secure enough to talk about writing i i didn't grow up even speaking english i think it was like the third language i barely mastered and um Hmm. it it still boggles my mind that i write or even studied writing um but yeah i i sort of fell into this magazine writing world and i ended up meeting really great friends and we um created the the college's first glossy magazine it was called gauge and the magazine still exists at that school, and so essentially, incoming students, you know, go in and they take over and they write all the stories. It's it's pretty incredible. Um, so yeah, I moved to LA. I had That's intentions awesome. on moving to New York, um, but I just didn't want to go through more winters, so I decided to go to Los Angeles instead. Mm-hmm. And um, I tried to find magazines to work at, and you know, write blank query letters to, and. And ultimately, I got an internship at Flaunt Magazine, and I also got kind of like a trial period as an entertainment reporter at Eonline. and mm-hmm. I didn't really know anything about entertainment, didn't have a passion for it, didn't have a passion for celebrities, but that job actually paid versus the internship at Flaunt Magazine. So I just stuck with it for a couple of years and um, later moved into different jobs and different roles and ultimately became you know, editor and things like that at various websites and would freelance at magazines. And that was my my little
0: life for a
1: long time. And, and I would just eat at restaurants on the side.
0: How long did you do that for?
1: I think cumulatively, it was about uh, six to eight years. And I say six to eight, just because there was still a lot of time that I was um, overlapping. So I was I had kind of come to this decision that I was interested in opening a restaurant, as a lot of people do, but only some people aren't nutty enough to truly pursue it. And um, yeah. so there was times where I was trying to get my feet wet in the restaurant industry by getting you know, a job as a hostess, a job as a food runner, or a cashier and all of that. Um, but I was still doing writing on the side and uh, just to make ends meet.
0: Wait, so let's talk about that a little bit more. Let's let's dig into the sort of like part of your psyche that was like, "Hey, I have a good stable job, but I need something different." And the something different that is calling my name right now is the restaurant world. How did how did that internal conversation go for you? How did that happen?
1: I mean, for me, and I I don't think that I'm necessarily special, I feel like sometimes when people have stability, but perhaps it lacks passion, or you don't feel like it's your calling, or, you know, some sort of unfulfillment like bubbles up inside of you. And it's it's essentially how I felt I was not passionate about, you know, Hollywood celebrity entertainment culture and covering it in that capacity. So whenever you're up against this wall, in my opinion, you I mean you kind of have to have inner conversations with yourself and and ask, well, what is your passion? What is your calling? What what do you think you could be happy doing? Um, I was in my late twenties at that time, so I just thought, you know, a place that I felt the happiest was always in this in these restaurant spaces. It wasn't even that I was passionate about cooking. I I'm mainly passionate about receiving food and enjoying it in you know human made spaces and um yeah I just thought I could, maybe I could do something like this I could open a place of my own and and welcome people in and you know and it kind of ties back to just I think it was it's wonderful to be in crowds like this but essentially not not necessarily running the crowd or even in that, but being a part of that energy, it's like you know, doing an yeah. exercise, club, exercise class with like a bunch of other people. You sort of feed off of that energy. And I had, you know, I'm an only child and just grew up in a different manner. And you know, I had a lot of amazing families and friends um, that took me in at a at a young time and really taught me how to survive around a dinner table. And make conversation, and I understood, um, even if I didn't know how to verbalize it or name it, but I, I was starting to understand the concept of hospitality and and what it means to sort of welcome people in and um, take care of them. So that's what ha- yeah. that, that's what happened. It, it just percolated, and I then just went after it.
0: And so, had you had any restaurant work experience prior to that? Prior to this sort of like decision? No, none. Not even like busting or bartending, none of it.
1: None of it. I had worked um, in retail all of college and worked
0: at the front desk of a hair salon in high school. What was the first true restaurant gig you got while you were trying to get your feet wet? Um,
1: It was a Sunday brunch hostess shift at a restaurant in Hollywood. It was called The Mercantile. Um, It's in the space that is now currently occupied by Gwen. And um, yeah, it was like barely a friend of a friend that helped me secure that (laughs) one shift a week job. And, you know, ultimately I was able to fill in somebody, like somebody called out on a Tuesday food running shift and I was like, I'll do it. You know, and then eventually I graduated to taking on a cashier role and then you know, suddenly I was taking orders and serving and, and all of that. I never, I didn't necessarily come across a time of being nervous that I couldn't do it or being like, or I didn't want to do it. I was, I, I it was flipped in my mind. I mainly wanted to see if I had the stamina to do it. Um, mm-hmm. There were times where, um, again, I'll mention again that I don't cook. So I, but I was encouraged to take an internship at a, a very nice restaurant called Luke and do an internship in the kitchen. So I worked for free for about two and a half months um, in a Suzanne Goen Carolyn Stein restaurant, their flagship restaurant at the time. And I did three shifts a night. I would work like nine or 10 hour shifts, Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And that was truly terrifying work to me. I mean, even though I wasn't certainly responsible for anything, you know, but I I had really no business being in their kitchen and they were really kind and generous to to just let me be there and, and, and kind of be in their way. But I would organize their walk-in. I learned a lot about vegetables. I sliced tomatoes. I dropped stock, like big giant pots of stock that I honestly, they were bigger than me and I, I shouldn't have done that either.
0: A lot A lot of people get their start Doing these stages right and uh, it's crazy to me that like they allow people who have no experience to be in there and learn. It's really cool, but that would never happen in like corporate America. you know you could never walk up to like Nike and be like, "Hey, I really want to learn how to design shoes. Can I just hang out here for like you know a couple weeks? That would never yeah. happen it's It's something that's really cool that happens in the restaurant industry
1: well, I think we're always recruiting, I suppose. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Always be recruiting. So it sounds like you had some, some, uh, this was a bit of a transitionary time between your job as a journalist or as an editor and entering the restaurant world full-time. At what point did you enter the world full-time?
1: I was exploring a position at a new restaurant, kind of like a restaurant group, And answered. I answered a tweet. Actually, there was a there was a restaurant tour at the time um, that was seeking. The position wasn't even advertised like as a title, but like was seeking help with their new restaurant. It was called Pica. It was a Peruvian restaurant that was on Pico Boulevard.
0: Ricardo Zerate, right?
1: Yes, he was our chef, and um, yeah, and the job ended up being just like very basic reservationist. Admin work um, that was shared a shared role between Soto and Pika because they were um, somewhat of a sister restaurant situation, um, but they were upstairs and downstairs from one another. And I believe I was in that role for maybe two months, Max, and um, the owners of the of Pika of, of of the upstairs restaurant essentially asked if I wanted to become a manager. And funnily enough, I just hadn't even it had never occurred to me to become a manager in order to learn more about restauranteuring. Um, Now, to me, it obviously seems so obvious. Um, But I had no training. They were my first, it was my first entrance of of training and it was really hard. I often credit that job as being one of the hardest jobs I'd ever had. Um, I definitely, I just wasn't prepared. It's a it's a mm-hmm. huge responsibility. The hours are long, but um, you know, to kind of come in and generally work with you know well seasoned servers and bartenders and bussers like you know, even positions I didn't even know all the names of. Um, but to come in and attempt to be their leader and to you know sh- shepherd an experience night after night, it it was a lot. I, w- I was in over my head for sure. Um, definitely felt uh not not in a good place <laughs> but eventually <laughs> eventually I grew to make that role you know my own and I just felt um I felt a great responsibility to um do a good job but also um earn earn the respect from from my team and um mm-hmm. and really just provide a good experience, um, for our guests and hopefully our return guests. So I, I feel like, you know, these were all lessons either truly gleaned, um, by, by experience, or I was lucky enough to either receive them as actual, actual lessons. Um, mm-hmm. so eventually I left that job and, um, accepted another role at another restaurant group, Animal and some of the and I worked there for almost two years. And Animal is where I met my current business partner, um, Jonathan Whitener, the amazing chef of All Day Baby. Yeah. And here's looking at you. And um, we met working together as colleagues. But at that point, I was, I was burnt to a crisp. Like I had 100% like, lost, forgot, you know, this passion that I was interested in opening a restaurant. I was just trying to get another job. I felt very actually destroyed <laughs> from yeah. the, the pika job i mean i feel like we've all been there it doesn't you don't have to work in a restaurant to feel that way but um but you know i obviously needed to you know have a job so when i took on the job at animal instead of again it was it was just to have a job it was it was what i had experience doing at that point so you know either that or i go back to you know working at a website again yeah um,
0: what what reignited the spark in you to go out and do your own restaurant, because it sounds like you just said you'd forgotten about it for a little while.
1: I did a um, couple of years. Um, one day, I was just driving to work. I think I was driving to Animal. Um, I split my time each week between Animal and Son of Again, and I just, I just had this funny epiphany that you know, I, I work with a really talented chef. We we had developed a friendship. I was I was so. He, you know his cooking is, is so unique and um, actually moved me. You know some of the work that I was doing in this kind of um, in between time was I was a I was a food writer and I would be either going out to explore other restaurants or being invited to go explore other restaurants and um, I wasn't. You know when you eat that much, it's it's sort of easy to kind of it all kind of blurs together and maybe not a lot feels. Particularly inspiring, for example, mm-hmm. and I always felt like every dish that Chef Jonathan would put on, you know, really felt em- emotionally exciting and, um, and different, and such a perspective. And um, yeah, I, I was always really moved by it. So this just one day, I was driving to work and was thinking, remember when I wanted to open a restaurant? You know, this is just obviously a conversation I'm just having internally, and I was like. Maybe Chef Jonathan is exactly who I've been looking for. You know, he, I had always had it in my mind that I wanted to open a modern Vietnamese restaurant, an homage to, you know, my culture. And Jonathan is Mexican American, but he grew up in Orange County and Orange County is home to the most Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. And he knows a lot about Vietnamese yeah. food, and he's taught and he's taught me so much about it since I grew up eating at Chili's, and um, he, <laughs> yeah, and I, I just, I, I was so, literally rocked by this, like thought I couldn't even believe it had never occurred to me. So I wanted to ask him, and I did, and ultimately we decided it would be a good idea that we could explore. And I ultimately left Animal right away. And then, of course, didn't yeah. know what to do. Like, I, no one knows how to open a restaurant.
0: What about Chef Jonathan's cooking moved you? Do you have, the, do you have an example of a dish, for example, where you were like, hmm, this guy, he gets it?
1: There's so many. It's, um, I think, you know, Jonathan is really good at making sauces <laughs> we joke uh-huh. all the time he's just a sauce chef and <laughs> you know and he just finds like a protein or another thing to lather in that sauce and but he really can you know elevate your palate and really take you down almost a roller coaster and you feel mm-hmm. you f- you actually feel like you're either reliving a new an old memory a new memory you're just going through
2: Mm -hmm. interesting
1: channels and I never even thought about food necessarily critically you know I just know if something tastes good or doesn't taste good Um, I was similar also as a movie editor for the record (laughs) I was like I like this movie I don't like this movie Um, and I remember he had this citrus salad (laughs) which sounds 100% boring Um, and it certainly to me at that time you know because I I was like obsessed with burgers I still am um, but it was like sliced, you know, different different kinds of oranges, maybe grapefruit too. But you know, I learned a lot about Cara Cara oranges and blood orange and all of that. And so they were sliced onto this like really cute little cheap Japanese plate. I had a champagne vinegar or vinaigrette, and then it had pistachio duca on it. And this was mm. 2013 or 2014, so I you know I had never heard about duca at that time, um, and. I just thought it was exceptional like
2: mm-hmm. how
1: he made sliced fruit so yummy and refreshing and meaningful. And, um, you know, and it, and it evoked, um, you know, a, a wonderful tribute to California produce. I learned about, you know, the farmer it came from. I learned about, you know, in a way, the art, the, be, the beginnings of my curiosity for, Duca and, you know, and its Middle Eastern and et cetera, kind of like heritage and origin story. So, how a small plate of fruit, you know, really got me thinking.
0: That is such a beautiful way to talk about food. I can tell you have a little bit of a background as a food writer, too, because the story you just told about that one dish, you could write a whole book about it. Now, yeah. what about that moment where you had, where you pitched Chef Jonathan on going out, leaving his quote-unquote stable job at Animal and going out and starting your own restaurant, did he take some convincing or was he like, let's do it?
1: He did not take as much convincing as I thought I, I would need. Um, I was quite nervous. Um, he, he'd stayed at his stable job for a long time because, like, he, I mean, at the end of the day, he didn't know me. And, I, yeah, and I was like, we're going to open a restaurant together, but I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to go figure it out. And he's like, Sure. But I went out that night with the team. I didn't normally go out, um but sometimes, especially the cooks, like you know they would all go out for drinks, et cetera. and we went to this place, um gold diggers, the old gold diggers, and mm-hmm. um yeah, i just I cornered him like at some point and nervously asked if he would ever want to open this Vietnamese place with me and um i I just remember he said that sounds cool. That sounds easy. <laughs> and I, you know, I saw him at work either the next day or whenever my next shift there was. And he, he said to me again, he was like, yeah, I thought about it. And he was like, he was like, that doesn't sound very hard. I, just, Yeah. And that was kind of how it got started. And then my birthday was coming up and he was like, well, why don't, why don't I, you know, come over and make the food for your birthday party? And I was like, okay. And it would, you know, be food you know, that we would possibly serve at this hypothetical modern Vietnamese bar that we were going to potentially open together. Um, and it was delicious. Of course, Like, of course, like, I've never really tasted anything that the man has yeah. made that wasn't delicious.
0: So you leave Animal, you're like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to open a restaurant. Talk to me about that process. Did you have, it sounds like the concept was, was there kind of, but it was pretty loose. What what was what were the next steps for you? How did you turn this amorphous dream into reality?
1: I didn't do anything for like six months. I just didn't know what to do or how to begin. Um, I keep busy. Like I'm really good or really bad, depending on who you're asking, at taking on odd and jobs and projects and helping people. Like I, I, I very much enjoy being helpful, and I like having, you know, my mind or my hands into lots of different things. So I I sort of did that. Like I had a couple random, you could call them freelance gigs. And then I remember, you know, about six months had passed and I was like, what am I doing? And maybe other people that cared about me also asked the same question. What are you doing? (laughs) Um, and one day I, um, had a conversation with who is now my current landlord at Heroes Looking at You. And he had been operating um, a Philly cheesesteak restaurant called Wiz at Sixth and Oxford. And um, he mentioned that, one, he was expanding his concept into the two spaces adjacent to it, um, getting a beer and wine license for it. But then at one point he changed his mind. And instead of him taking on that project, he wanted to take on a tenant, find a tenant that would populate that space. And I think he was only sharing this with me because he thought maybe I would know someone that would be interested. Like maybe I had a connection here and there and could put some feelers out. Um, what he didn't know was that I I was potentially interested in looking at that space. So I essentially timidly was like, well, can I come see it? And, um, and when I saw it, uh, I immediately thought, What if what if this is it? And so then I call up Jonathan. At that point, I hadn't even talked to Jonathan in several months. Like he was busy at work and I was busy not understanding what to do. And but I was like, I think I would like to talk to you about a space. I would like for you to come see it. When we saw it, um our initial impression was that it was bigger than what we had intended for the modern Vietnamese concept. But if it wasn't going to be for that then what would it be and he was like let me just go home and think about it and um the next the next week i saw him he like hand wrote in front of me like live wrote a menu <laughs> for the future here's looking at you and it i mean it was mind blowing i i don't know anyone that does this and i mean maybe, maybe other chefs do this but it was mind blowing to me at the time cuz i had never seen anybody live write a menu like a, like a 15 course menu And, um,
2: it was pretty special.
1: Yeah, no. And, you know, I didn't even know half of these ingredients, but I kind of knew a little bit and I, I could tell it was delicious. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I don't know what this is. Like, what is this? Like, what kind of food is this? And he was like, I don't know what it is either. he was like, this is just my cooking. And so I spun my cooking into, um, a one page proposal to first the landlord To convince him to at least hold the space for a second, so that I could figure out a way to find money to seal the deal with the landlord. So did that first, and then proceeded to write. I think it was a 19-page business plan. I had never written one before, but I figured it had something to do with writing out the concept, selling it in a manner that would generate a bunch of money, (laughs) and that's you know, I kind of laid it out. Just, I just used, you know, some of my writing experience and magazine layout experience and created a nice PDF document, um, sent it to a handful of people that I thought had more money than me, uh, to read it. People that hopefully cared about me, um, in some, some manner and ultimately got a couple verbals right away that, yeah, I'll give you 50 K. And, um, so I let the landlord know that we, you know, really got serious, obviously, about putting together a deal. And by August of 2015, uh, that lease was signed. So we were on, we were on a path. So, you know, John, it was important that Jonathan maintain, you know, an income. So he kept working, you know, other investors that we, you know, definitely needed to cook for, or secure, we did that. And then by. By the fol- this by the summer of the following year, we opened.
0: What happens after you sign the lease? Is it like space is now yours? Now it's time to go, and uh, you have to really start putting the pieces together. Do you? Because obviously, you know, half the world now has seen the bear and uh, their their experience of opening the bear restaurant, and they do it in like a ridiculous timeline of like six weeks or something. Obviously 6 weeks is an unrealistic timeline. But the amount of work that you see on the show, is that kind of what it's like to open a restaurant from scratch? Like you got to you got to do it soup to nuts, everything. Walls, food, kitchen, tear it down, build it back up. Was that your experience? Yeah.
1: I mean, I haven't seen The Bear and um I had the waffle I had earlier was with Courtney Storer, who's a part of The Bear. <laughs> So she knows that I haven't seen the bear. Um I don't have that streaming service. So I you know, it's different for everybody and I certainly think you can flip a restaurant in 6 weeks time if it's a turnkey moment. For us it wasn't. You know, it was three spaces morphed together. It required a lot of construction. Um so you need you need a lawyer, you need an accountant, you need a contractor, you need subcontractors, you need an expediter to help you go through everything, you need to decide if you're going to buy a liquor license, you need a lot of time and a lot of money. So it's the, it's a lot of moving parts um, that all kind of need each other. And and then you just have to run around. Like, you, you know, the first order of business this week is like finding the tiles for the bathroom. So what tiles are you going to use? So then I go to the tile store. You know? <laughs> So, it, I mean, it's a lot of horrible, horrible construction work and bureaucracy work and having meetings with like police people that like help you decide your future and and city council meetings. A lot of interesting and deeply horrible work <laughs> to get a restaurant open, at least in Los Angeles. That's all I can speak for. Well,
0: I mean, I, I've heard experiences from other cities too. It doesn't sound. Any easier, uh, let's put it that way. So let's fast forward to opening night of Here's Looking at You. Uh, What was that like? What were the butterflies like that night?
1: I remember, I mean, there were two friends and family nights um, in advance of the opening night. Opening night was July 13th, 2016. Um, I just remember still not being ready. and. And also, you know, finding myself suddenly responsible for employees and um, trying to give them what we what we do every night currently is provide a snapshot of what, what what the night will be to come. You know, one of my mottos always as a leader is I always want to give a proper heads up to my team. You know, the beauty of opening night at Here's Looking at You is I, I didn't know what the heads up was going to be. And, and I also found myself extremely emotional and very reclempt and not very good at even addressing an audience, you know, and it, mm-hmm. these were just not skills that I necessarily had. And, um, I was very nervous and, you know, I was just talking to a, um, a, a younger restaurateur than me as, as far as like, she hasn't been a restaurateur as long as I have, um, And she recalls, you know, one of the more satisfying moments recently for her was like looking out at all the guests in her place and not knowing a single person and how gratifying and incredible that feels because it's not like a room full of people that like love you or pity you or, you know, or supporting you because you beg them, but it's like complete strangers, you know, sitting in on your furniture, buying your food and then paying you for it. And it's very, it's very gratifying and, and exhausting and it's so many feelings um so i imagine feeling those things um but it's hectic you know That's you want cool. you want systems in place and there as much as you try to prepare you it's difficult to prepare for something you don't know and nobody really you know taught you and it's it, every restaurant's kind of different um but yeah and no, we kept going and i mean I just remember, you know, people not showing up for their reservations. We had this we have a beautiful bar and no one sat at the bar cuz like you couldn't make a reservation at the bar at that time and people didn't know who we were, so they certainly weren't just walking in off the streets. Um so it also was disappointing and like, you know, you just can't help but beat yourself up and feel like you could have done better.
0: Yeah. yeah, I think uh especially if you have even just a little bit of perfectionism in you at all uh, I feel like it's hard not to take that kind of thing almost personally you know cuz it's such a personal project your your restaurant your space right so oh, yeah. but I love that anecdote that you just told about looking around and not recognizing anybody I remember the day when it was not just my mom listening to this podcast anymore it felt so good here's looking at you at least from the outside experienced pretty pretty instant success. I mean, at least from in terms of critical reception. And again, I wasn't in there living it like you were, and I'm sure it didn't feel like an overnight success to you. But from what I can recall, the reviews that came out were glowing, very positive. What was it like to start to receive some of that critical reception?
1: I had changed our lives. Like, I mean, the first four months were brutal. You know, I mean, we, there was like a core team that all worked six days a week. We were open every day, but Tuesday, and it was exhausting and we weren't busy. Like, you know, there were people every night, but we certainly were not busy. We were still very unknown and we received um, a Jonathan Gold review in the LA Times um, the week of Thanksgiving. And I mean, it was deeply emotional. It's
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: then for us was like, finally, a taste of possible success. I mean, you know, and then it, it was, we were just so exhausted and running on nothing. Um, but it felt very rewarding to feel so seen. You know, Jonathan Gold was such a gifted observer and restaurant lover. And it was incredible to see him. Um, I don't know pay such meaningful attention to dishes but also our cocktail program you know jonathan and i did not know we were going to have or be passionate about a cocktail program and when we when we ended up getting this not a surprise but we were we were genuinely surprised to receive this liquor license we just weren't sure if we would get it approved um so then we had to like you know frantically like put together a bar program, find someone to be in charge of it. And um Alan Katz and Danielle Crouch were our bar directors or they were like our consultants at the time and we had a team and it, it, they were just so so special. And you know, I still remember the cocktails that Jonathan Gold and his wife Lori ordered in the lobby because like their table wasn't ready and like I I remember <laughs> everything. And, you know, and then I remember their second visit and then their third visit and like where they sat and it's and you know when when he was on the radio and like this drink that he talked about it, you know I remember all of it, and because I'm grateful for those moments because we probably wouldn't be here without it
0: It is always mind boggling to me the effect and impact that critics have on restaurants and their livelihoods i you know, the stories of Jonathan Gold alone and the impact that he had on restaurants like, you know, Morisco's Jalisco or Meals by Jeanette, like all of those restaurants that literally can trace their success to his review. Real quick, what do you think about that? The power that critics obviously worked out well for you, but it doesn't work so well for some restaurants. Like, do you, what do you, what do you think of that? And how do you think like in this era of like blogging and influencing that's changed?
1: Anybody with a level of influence, meaning people pay attention to what they think and say, um, in a way can have impact or influence or responsibility towards anything because people are paying attention to what that person thinks or feels and sees. So a critic's responsibility is to... Research and locate restaurants that they think are worthy enough to spend actual money on ink you know space on a website space in a newspaper to to discuss um, I think great critics I think are very valuable because I think they do take exceptional time and consideration um, to talk about a space I mean I would be really scared <laughs> to get a to get a negative review obviously because it can impact your business negatively but to not have it at all there's hundreds and thousands of restaurants in LA county alone that don't get any attention by anybody a blogger or any of the like and how the only attention that they can get are by their own means, you know. I always talk about the fr- your website is like free advertising or like word of mouth. You know, the guests that you can take care of the five guests you can take of t- take care of today, and hopefully they tell five more people and five more people and like. So, if your business, as in the case of here's looking at you, you know, it it was sort of always going to be a destination restaurant. It it didn't necessarily, you know, fit. The bill of just like a casual neighborhood restaurant, reliant on walk-ins. So it was. It's quite extraordinary to receive Los Angeles Times size readership, and to get those eyes on our business, and suddenly you know, people care to to Google your business or save it, and and then actually make a reservation and show up for it. So I think it can really change a lot of people's lives for good. I always you know, based on my background, it's important to me that people write um, with integrity and truth. I think it doesn't always happen, but I don't necessarily know if all press is good press as the saying goes yeah. I don't quite remember the saying, but um, that's
0: that's it there's yeah, all is, press is it? good for, yeah
1: but like you know, I think every restaurant and maybe another facets of the world and other professions, but we're all trying to fight to be relevant because we're all trying to fight for an audience, you know, someone to listen and to hopefully feel influenced to support you.
0: Well speaking of fighting, um I know that there was obviously during the pandemic was tough for a lot of restaurants, but that almost ended here's looking at you, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. And for a while there, it was uncertain whether Here's Looking at You was going to survive past the pandemic. Would you be able to talk about real quick what it was like to almost lose Here's Looking at You and then make that decision or action to bring it back? What was that like?
1: I mean, I think like so many of us, it just felt everything felt so out of our control and at here's looking at you when we were able to reopen with the help of a time specific ppp loan and with specific rules at that time as well this was early 2020 um you know it was very evident and like i i can certainly predict why takeout wouldn't work for here's looking at you we never did takeout to begin with because it, it it just doesn't work. Like a lot of the charm and appeal of Heroes Looking at You, it's its intimacy and what the space felt like and what it was like to share this food together. And this was a time where you were told to stay far apart, not share, not leave your house. And um, no one was coming to Heroes Looking at You during this like brief six-week period that we were open. So economically, you know it it was the only choice was to close it um at the time it i felt that i just needed to say that it was going to be a temporary closure but because everything was a big giant question mark but um a month later after being closed uh our landlord who also is a small business owner you know their family just they own this building and they obviously need to have a thriving business in it and um they essentially felt like if we weren't going to try and reopen it, then we needed to put it up for sale. So I'm was just trying to always do the right thing. I mean, I'm doing my best, especially during unprecedented times. I was keeping all day baby somewhat alive, barely, um, because at least it was getting you know a response to take out. And, it, and you'll trust me, it's like a handful of people a day, <laughs> but it was somebody versus nobody coming here is looking at you, which is a true story. I'm not exaggerating um so eventually you know it took a lot of time to learn how to sell a business that you don't even want to sell i mean it's very heartbreaking you just feel like you're doing everything against what you believe and yeah and you feel very or i this is how i felt i felt very responsible for like i had done things very wrong (laughs) i was doing wrong by my my guests my 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 team my investors so, but eventually we found, you know, a, a buyer not suitable because it wasn't going to be any money. And I I don't even think that we would have been able to, uh, you know, clear our debts because um, debt is just accruing, you know, the utility bills are still coming in. Like you have all of the vendors bills that you didn't even pay, like when you closed. And I mean, it, it was kind of a mess. We weren't paying rent. Um, so we found this buyer. I remember we like went into escrow like two days before. We had a new president and, um, Mm -hmm. and soon after, um, Joe Biden took office, you know, there were already, there was a lot of activity to create, um, hopefully a restaurant relief package among other things. Um, and shortly after that, as I'm in escrow, a relief package did come out that all day baby applied for and actually received. Um, but here's looking at you wasn't eligible because it was in process of being sold, so it ended up not being sold because <laughs> the buyer sort of dragged their feet on fulfilling escrow, you gotta have money. And then it got to a point where outdoor di- or like indoor dining was being reopened. I mean, so much was happening. There was vaccines and you know, and suddenly, and then the landlord's like, I mean, he's just looking at his business too and being like, the space is still vacant, still not doing anything. Where's this buyer? If the buyer's not going to buy, Lynn, Jonathan, you guys need to reopen. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to disentangle myself from this without getting in a lot of legal trouble. Like, I don't, you know, but in the end it happened, but then I had to emotionally roll back. I had been grieving the death of this restaurant now for more than a year. And then to have to kind of revert and end to think of a mind boggling, almost impossible solution as to how to reopen this. We had no money. And To reopen it to absolve ourselves of debt, like the only way, in my opinion, was to to do what I never thought I would ever do, which was to crowd crowdfund. And so I launched a GoFundMe campaign on November seventh, twenty twenty (laughs) one. And um with with an expectation that we could possibly do this with the help of our community. And if we did, we would do it in five weeks. Um, and so to answer your question, I mean, you can kind of reopen a restaurant <laughs> in five weeks. Yeah. It was a lot because it was, it was closed. Like everything was in a storage unit, like gutted, turned off, gone. Um, and so we did, you know, we were able to very quickly raise its first 25 grand on the overnight. And then, then to me, it seemed like, okay, this is a true very matter of fact, green light. Like I, we can do this. We just have to keep pushing and, and do everything on a meaningful timeline. Um, we were able to soft open for three nights in those, in that five week timeline, but then we had to close again because, um, we actually, it was really hard to rehire and everybody got Omicron. There was an Omicron wave. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. but we, we officially reopened on January 9th, 2022, which is our new birthday. Um, yeah, it feels nuts. It still feels nuts.
0: What a story. I mean, it's just like it could be the case study for all of the ups and downs and ins and outs that restaurants faced during the pandemic. Like, you truly, it's incredible. And I feel so lucky that we still have Here's Looking at You in the city. And it's really, you know, serendipitous circumstances by which we still have it. Um, as diners uh, to be able to enjoy, um, but what a cool story and look, we didn't even get to talk about your other restaurants today, all day baby, and the Vietnamese concept that you did finally open and end up opening right tete a tete but there's just so much to unpack with here's looking at you that i it felt like it was really important to dig deep, but the one last thing I wanted to ask you about was related to all of this effort that you talked about and getting here's looking at you open and that's regarding her food, which is a really cool organization that you helped start. If I'm not mistaken, real quick, just to close, I'd love to hear sort of about the organization's mission and what y'all are up to with it.
1: I mean, the organization was born, um, very close to the early part of the pandemic, but it was like the fall winter. It was, we were entering in our first fall winter of COVID and A few women restaurateurs all got on Zoom to discuss and lament kind of like our collective experience and and what we thought we could do. And ultimately, we decided, why don't we start this nonprofit? Why don't we organize and get every single women-owned business in food and beverage together to create a 10-day food festival, um, to generate activity and awareness around the fact that our businesses are open, collaborating, creating takeout, because it was all takeout at that time, and get everybody motivated to support our businesses in the month of January, which is historically the, sol- the slowest month for restaurants anyway, and we just couldn't mm-hmm. imagine being any slower. And and then on the flip side, we would hopefully find brands um, with with extra cash essentially to to give our way so that we could develop a grant program because everybody just needed money. Um, develop some kind of grant program that was easy to apply for and really give out five, ten thousand dollars grants. Um, fifteen. There was one that was fifteen, and uh, to give it out to the women-owned businesses that really needed it most because women in general were impacted the most by the COVID pandemic because there was no childcare. You know many. You know, moms in between, like some parent needed to make the sacrifice and essentially stay home, and a lot of women left the job force around that time. And women restaurateurs were they were just juggling it all. And a lot of my peers, I I mean, I literally was on Zoom with like breastfeeding restaurateurs, and um, Hmm. yeah. And we're so happy to see that the organization is not only alive, but thriving and, and, and just on a mission to grow and expand into other cities. Um and just constantly be on this um be in this place of um always amplifying our our businesses because I think it's important to highlight because it comes naturally to highlight Certain businesses, and they just happen to sometimes always be male-owned, but I think you know to uplift and really highlight and illuminate other women-owned businesses. I think it's just putting the word out for other other talent, gender or
0: otherwise. One hundred percent. Well, listeners, go check out regarding her food. We will link to them, uh, the website in the show notes. I also have noticed the regarding her food sticker on certain restaurants too. So uh, if you see that, make sure to go in and support. Lynn, you've been an absolute delight to speak with. I honestly could talk to you all day. I feel like we only scratched the surface, got the chapter one, uh, but you'll just have to come back for chapters two and three someday.
1: I would be happy to. Thank you so much for taking the time to learn about our story.
0: Oh my God, what a story. Okay, well, here's looking at you all day, baby, tete-a-tete. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Lynn, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the L.A. Food Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Lin Ta. And seriously, dear listener, if I don't see you at next week's Food Trivia Night at All Day Baby, I'm going to be really disappointed. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. Seriously, I hear that reviews really help. So uh, if you can find it within yourself to leave us one, I would be eternally grateful if you're looking for me in the meantime you can find me on instagram tiktok and threads at the la countdown that's t-h-e-l-a-c-o-u-n-t-d-o-w-n you can also find me on instagram at la food pod that's l-a-f-o-o-d-p-o-d